Hello and welcome to Stoicism, Philosophy is a Way of Life. My name is Donald Robertson and today's guest is Matthew Ginden. Uh, did I pronounce that right? You got it. Yeah. Thank Matthew you. is a former, former forest monk in the Thai Buddhist tradition. He taught meditation practices for 15 years and has written extensively for Tricycle, the Buddhist review. He's now the author of The Philosophy as Therapy newsletter on Substack, which we know and love. Um, so hi, Matthew, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Donald. Thank you. You said earlier you were in Vancouver. I'm in Montreal, so at least we're in the same country. That's like, yeah, that's right. Start. This is the all Canadian issue. Yeah, it's the all Canadian edition of the podcast. Um, so let's start by talking a little bit about Stoicism, um, because I think we're mainly going to be talking about Buddhism and Stoicism today. But how did you first come across Stoicism and become interested in it? Well, I think the the credit goes to my dad. Um, my dad is an attorney. Uh, with an interest in philosophy, kind of uh, Cicero-like, perhaps. I was just thinking, he'll, he'll listen to this podcast later, so I wanted to throw that in there mostly because uh, I thought he'd really appreciate that comparison. Uh, but uh, he, when I was a kid, he used to um, in, introduce me to philosophical questions and paradoxes and, and sort of um, challenging things to think about. And uh, we used to, and still do, talk about ethics quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, and so I think that would, that's sort of the seed of it. He introduced me to Seneca and uh, the Penguin edition of Letters from a Stoic was something I read mm-hmm. as a teenager and loved. And uh, later on, when I was a monk, I read uh, Epictetus's uh, Enchiridion and Discourses, uh, Discourses and Fragments. I can't remember how I came to read it as a monk. I was trying to remember earlier, but, but I... I loved it, and I, I found some of Epictetus's um, cognitive therapies were things that I could uh, use in the context of my Buddhist practice. Yeah, um, and I think and Epictetus then, particularly appeals to monks. Yeah, yeah, I could see. I that. wonder, maybe more than Seneca. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, probably Perhaps. more than Seneca, um, and and maybe more than Marcus Aurelius as well. Uh, but I. Uh, and then the, 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 the growing interest in Stoicism after that, um, I, would, I would say two, two things about. One, it's more of a story of a transition from religion to philosophy than it is a transition from Buddhism to Stoicism. Um, and the second thing is that um, although... I'm very interested in Stoicism and I, I apply Stoic practices every day. You know, I, I don't consider myself a, you know, a dogmatic Stoic. Uh, I consider myself, you know, my, my primary interest is in philosophy as therapy and, and you know, the, the application of uh, philosophy as therapy for the mind and therapy for the character. And of course that was the, that was the passion and focus of Stoics. And uh, you know, they're sort of uh the torchbearers uh, of that wisdom. Yeah. So they're, you know, they're my primary interest, but I, but I do have a broader interest in other philosophers um, with the same concern as well. Name one. Let's start, dro- start dropping names. Spinoza. Sure. Spinoza That's a good name. Huge. Drop. Spinoza is a huge influence on me. Yeah. I, I've studied Spinoza for, in fact, uh, 
after I left the monastery, I began studying Spinoza. So I probably studied him for 20 years or more and, and read the ethics a number of times. And, and uh, he's had a huge influence. And I, and I, I also want to say that I, I really consider Spinoza to be um, to have a, his system resonates with the Stoic system so much. There you go. You know, I'm right. sure. I was going to ask you, like, how Stoic is Spinoza? In your I think opinion? tremendously Stoic. You know, I, I don't know if you're aware that Leibniz, who was a brilliant contemporary of Spinoza, Leibniz, um, who disagreed with Spinoza in many things, accused uh, Spinoza of being yeah. the leader of a sect of new Stoics. It's a closet Stoic. Crypto-Stoic. Yeah. Like, I agree with Leibniz. Like, I think Spinoza, um, who doesn't, I don't think, does he ever, I don't think he ever mentions the Stoics. Maybe he mentions them in passing. He he doesn't at any point give any indication of being a Stoic. He sure sounds a lot like a Stoic to me, and I don't say that lightly. Have you ever been to his house? Oh, no, I haven't. That would, that would, be, that would be awesome. I'd love to go to his house. He had very feet. small feet. Like the stairs, <laughs> like you have to go up on tiptoes. Like, but in his house, you'll find his library. And if you're a massive nerd, you might, vexed by this very question, have a look and see what books on Stoicism Spinoza had. And he'd actually read the story. He'd read Cicero, like he read Xenophon, he read Seneca. Like, and he had the discourses of Ariane in mm. a relatively small collection of, of books. So, of course, at, at that time, he didn't have a vast library. Um, so he definitely had studied Stoicism. And so it may well be that he was a low-key Stoic. Well, I think um, so many things about Spinoza's thought are resonant with the Stoics. His definition of virtue is basically identical um, his sense that God and the universe are the same thing, um, his sense that everything is determined, his deterministic system. I mean, those are three major big issues that really bring him into, into alignment with the Stoics. And also the fact that for, you know, for Spinoza, the goal of human life was what he called blessedness or freedom or excellence. And it was attained through uh, tinkering with your own cognition. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, uh, but, you know, Spinoza does mention the Stoics um, at least once. And it's interesting because despite how Stoic he is, it's actually a critical comment. And his criticism is that he feels, he felt that the Stoics believed that you could have complete control over your own emotions. And he did not believe complete control is possible. Mm-hmm. And neither in a sense did the Stoics, at least insofar as they acknowledged the existence of propathei or aspects or precursors of emotion that are involuntary. Um, So I think often it's the case that the Stoics had a more nuanced psychology of emotions than even other ancient uh, authors. They got this criticism even by their own contemporaries. Um, We know, for example, Herodes Atticus, who was the most famous sophist uh, in the second sophistic, uh, family friend of Marcus Aurelius criticized the, the Stoics for um, believing that they could control all their emotions and eliminate them all. And that's not what they really said. That's I, I agree with you. I, I don't think Spinoza's, I understand how he could have come to that conclusion, but I don't think it's a fair 
uh, assessment. I think what, what it might come down to is I don't think Spinoza believed that it was possible for anyone to become a sa- the Stoic sage. I think yeah. that he felt that um, that the degree of control that would be involved. I, I think he basically you could say that in the end, you know, Spinoza thought that the the ideal of the Stoic sage was not actually attainable. Although he he definitely advocated pursuing it. So the you know the agreement is minor, the disagreement is minor. You know, it's just basically he 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 would have said yes, that's the goal, shoot for that. But he would have said you're never going to completely attain it. Do you think uh, he was more stoic than he realized? Yeah, Jamie, we should go. If we should go back in time, <laughs> I and tell it to explain to him that he's more stoic than he realizes. Do you have any other philosophical influences? Spinoza can't. Spinoza and the Stoics can't be the only ones. Like, no. who, who's, what's number three? Uh, so. Although I have a lot of disagreements with him, another philosophical love of mine is Schopenhauer. Mm-hmm. Um, most partially because he's such a great philosophical writer, his style is just yeah. unmatched. He's such a pleasure to read. Yeah. But, but also, I find his analysis of many things to be brilliant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think he's underrated yeah. as a, a philosopher. I, I really um, have always been a, an admirer. I prefer Schopenhauer to Nietzsche. I'll have Schopenhauer over Nietzsche any day. Yeah, me too. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, I really, I really enjoy reading Schopenhauer. Um, anyone else you want to throw into the mix? I'd like, to, well, I'd like to mention too that you know more contemporary philosophers that I really enjoy. Uh-huh. Um, Martha Nussbaum comes to mind, and also Mary Midgley. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, you know Hannah Arendt. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I also do, and this is probably a more controversial opinion, but I do enjoy Heidegger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that, um, that is a bit more of my Buddhist side in the sense that I, right. I, I mean, I actually, in a, in a sense, I think Heidegger is kind of r- ridiculous, <laughs> you yeah. know, his, his, these unbelievably, um, torturous, long-winded, mm-hmm. um, almost maddening mm-hmm. prose of his, but, but I think yeah. that, um, if you approach it in a contemplative way, mm-hmm. um, I, I sort of enjoy going for the ride with him. And, mm-hmm. and getting into this state of this yeah. sort of phenomenological contemplation of the arising of things. Uh, yeah. I, I just kind of find Heidegger kind of a fun ride. Um, yeah, it's like a rabbit hole. Like yeah. you can go there. I spent a year or two years at university studying Heidegger at undergraduate level, which is kind of unusual. Like, and I couldn't help but notice back in the day when Microsoft Word was still relatively primitive, I guess it was the late 1990s or something, when I typed Heidegger's name in, I was writing an essay about him, it kept trying to convince me that what I really meant was the words headgear, which <laughs> seemed weirdly uh, appropriate to me. I also, I knew a guy once, I had a friend who insisted that he wanted to read Being in Time. And I said, honestly, it's mainly of interest to academics. It's not, it's really not an easy thing to read. I don't mean to put anyone off, but Honestly, it's, it's Heidegger, right? It's it's not a fun read unless you're a massive geek. And he's like, yeah. oh, I think I'd like to read it anyway. And I said, how about this, right? Read the table of contents, right? So he went off and he read the table of contents. Now, Heidegger's table of contents is full of German neologisms, Latin and Greek, in addition to just being like 
pretty technical so he read the table of contents and he was like yeah you know what Stephen that's too much for me (laughs) (laughs) that was all I needed (laughs) I think that's a really good uh, I'm going to keep that in mind myself I think that's a great if anybody says should I read Heidegger I think that's a great response read the table of contents yeah Uh, that's bad enough yeah Uh, and honestly if you only have so much time I mean as much as I Heidegger is like a leisure philosopher for me you know, it, but if you only have so much time to read philosophy, then then I would say of, of classical kind of philosophers, read Socrates, read Epictetus. Yeah. Uh, you're going to get much more out of it. Yeah, that's, that's really useful. You know. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Well, maybe that leads on into the the next question that I wanted to ask you, which is: given that these are the things that influenced you, and Stoicism features prominently. Uh, in it, along with crypto stoic, we've got pegged as a crypto stoic uh, Spinoza. Why does stoicism seem to be going through a renaissance in popularity? Why should why why you know why should anyone care? Because it wasn't always like this. When I was a lad, no one cared about stoicism. More people cared about Heidegger than about the Stoics. But now it's on everybody's lips. Like Hollywood celebrities are walking about with books on stoicism, you know, it's uh, become trendy, bizarrely. So, and it wasn't like that maybe even 20 years ago. So why has stoicism become so popular in your opinion? Well, I'm, I, I want to turn this around a bit and say, I want to hear your opinion after I say mine. Cause I think that you probably, you would, in fact, I'm, I'm not just think, but I'm, I'm, close to certain that you would know much better than I from your extensive experience dealing with people who, who have discovered stoicism. But um, I think that there's a, a couple of factors that I would point to. One has to do with the general breakdown in what I would call uh, coherent cultural training. I, I think that um, past generations had more strong, unified, dogmatic sense of what a human being should be. Um, And and I think that uh, now people who have grown up post-World War II, I think, have much less of a clear training. I think they've been told more to express themselves, to go out and find uh, their authenticity, their own path, you know, follow your bliss, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think... um, now getting into that generation and also people raised by them and then their grandchildren who have all kind of grown up in that milieu are finding that they're, they, they desire a type of training for the mind, uh, you know, a coherent, unified approach to being a human being. But at the same time, religion is very problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not at all anti-religious. I'm actually very sympathetic to to different religions, and I have I have tremendous respect for uh, the great religions and great religious teachings. But you know, speaking for myself, I've I've explored a number of different spiritual and religious paths, and I, you know, my my I think the reason I never settled in one, my problem is that I just can't tolerate cognitive dissonance. Uh, you know, I can never buy into any everything that any religious worldview says. There are always things I disagree with or that bother me or I don't think are well evidenced. And other people seem to be able to tune those things out, but they just, they just, they're like thorns in my side. I just can't tune them out, which is why I, 
kept coming back to philosophy over and over again. And then finally, over the course of my life, kind of was like, you know what? I'm just going to be a philosopher. I, I just want to, mm -hmm. um, I, I, I don't want to tolerate cognitive dis dissonance. And I want to be a free agent, uh, you know, uh, who learns from tradition, but who can think freely. And it's hard Seems to reasonable. Sorry, what did you say? Seems reasonable. Yeah. And I think that it's hard to find, harder to find that in religious communities. I think mm -hmm. that religious communities, even if they want to be open-minded, um, they have, uh, you know, much stronger commitments to not questioning certain things and not... They're known for it. They're known for their dogmas. Yeah, exactly. In general, to be yeah. fair. Yeah. So I think, you know, and, and I think that that's true even in the best of religious communities. And, uh, and so I, I think, coming back to your original question, I think that a lot of people feel the way that I have come to feel. And I, and I think that um, that desire for, uh, for, for a unified training, for a connection to tradition is satisfied by Stoicism. But at least I think if you approach it in the right way, <laughs> um, you, you, can, you, you don't have that, that uh, dogmatic pressure and that, that pressure to accept cognitive dissonance or to believe in things that don't make sense yeah. to you. I think so. The Stoics were first and foremost philosophers in the Socratic tradition, I believe. And, you know, they agreed with each other often about theology. But I think it was more important that they employed reason. They want us to live in accord with reason, not just accept dogmas as articles of faith, you know, or based on a, an appeal to authority or anything like that that goes completely against um, everything they, they represent. You asked what my view was about why Stoicism is popular. I think it echoes some of the things that you've just been saying. I just ask people, why are you interested in Stoicism? And they say, because they see it as a secular alternative to Christianity. Hmm. Because they see it as a Western alternative to Buddhism. Because they see it as a more practical and down-to-earth alternative to academic philosophy. And because they see it as a more philosophical alternative to cognitive behavioral therapy and modern self-improvement literature. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Those are those are the things that I tend to hear. Um, I wondered, we mentioned a little bit about your background as a, as a monk and uh, Buddhism being a, a special interest of yours. What do you think Stoicism and Buddhism have in common then? Let's start with that. Yeah. I think that, that Stoicism and Buddhism have a lot in common. Um and I think the differences are interesting as well. But starting with the commonalities, um, Stoicism and Buddhism both believe that, well, uh, you know what, I'm going to backtrack for one minute because we're using this word Buddhism. I just want to make a comment about this. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, Buddhism is, uh, is actually a number of different religious and spiritual yes. movements, you know, which have developed over almost 3000 years, um, mm -hmm. traveled all over the world. And sometimes different types of Buddhism are in complete disagreement with each other. Can uh, I just interject and ask you a little bit about that? Because I absolutely agree with you. I think this is a frustrating question sometimes because, and I, I, I thought about this all day and I came to realize, I wonder if Westerners in general underestimate how diverse Buddhism 
actually is. And it may be because Christianity is quite diverse, but it's my belief that Buddhism is more diverse than, than Christianity. I wonder what you think about that. I absolutely believe that it is more diverse than Christianity. I, I agree with that. Some of the extremes include um, the Buddha, you know, for instance, himself said that it was never uh, a good idea to, uh, for instance, to become angry. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also that one should never kill any living being whatsoever under any circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, he also said that, you know, he strongly yeah. advised that to attain total freedom, one mm-hmm. should be celibate. Mm-hmm. Um, but then at the other extreme, you have forms of tantric Buddhism, which um, use uh, sexual techniques mm-hmm. in order to attain enlightenment and which mm-hmm. advocate um, committing acts of violence in order to free the mind from mm-hmm. um yeah, the reification of moral dualities. Yeah. So I mean, the, the, those that those are extreme opposite points of view. And these are supposed to be also kind of some of the essential doctrines. There's other more peripheral areas where there's even more disagreement. But some Buddhists eat meat. In the East, um, I met a, a Tibetan. Once he told me he ate meat, and also a Sri Lankan Buddhist abbot I met once ate meat, and I said how he reconciled that with the doctrine of ahimsa. I said, so do you believe in the doctrine of ahimsa that you shouldn't harm any sentient creature? And he said, yeah, of course. You know, it's a a central Buddhist doctrine, and and so I said, I don't understand that. Like, how can how do you reconcile that with meat eating? Because most Buddhists that we know in the West are vegetarian. Um, and he said, well, I don't kill the animal. The butcher kills it. So it's, it affects his karma, not mine. And I said, but you pay the butcher. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but he didn't see it that way, which is interesting. So I guess another example, sometimes of the, the logic um, that's employed in moral reasoning in different cultures is, is not the same as we're used to in the West. Well, that, that is a great example. And I actually would love to respond to that example because it's going to give me an opportunity to address both the example itself and Buddhist diversity in one shot. <laughs> so, you know, the, the, the Buddha himself, you know, he lived 2,600 years ago, approximately. Uh, the dates are debated. Um, and he, there's evidence that he was literate and multilingual, but he didn't write anything down. And uh, what he did do was organize his teachings in the form of lists, which was very common in India to memorize things in lists. And also he, um, he organized his teachings in verse, you know, basically poems that could easily be memorized. And then his disciples memorized a whole bunch of conversations he had had very much like Socrates discourses. And there's a huge amount of discourses of the Buddha that we have. And um, after he, uh, after he died, the monks, basically systematized all of that stuff and chanted it and memorized it. And of course they elaborated on it and they added commentaries and they Mm -hmm. wrote new poems in the voice of the Buddha that he hadn't actually spoken, you know, Mm -hmm. and new discourses that elaborated on things that people had questions about that he hadn't actually said, you know, and you can imagine how this process would have happened. And it, it, we think that it probably was the the core of it was, was written in about a hundred years after his death. Mm -hmm. Um, not written, sorry, but finalized because it was chanted orally for centuries before it was written down. But um, 
So when was it first written down in the first century AD? That's right, in Sri Lanka. And uh, a long time uh, after, like, it was an oral tradition for a long time. It was an oral tradition for a long time, but we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that, you know, because it was oral, that means that it was uh, not dependable. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, actually, studies of these oral traditions have shown that actually these oral traditions are more dependable because they don't make scribal errors um, and because the capacity to memorize of, of these uh, people at that time and still today in Burma, you know, they have memorization contests. One monk was able to memorize 10,000 pages of the Buddha's discourses absolutely perfectly, you know, with no mistakes. So anyway, um, the point being that eventually over time, as people began writing more and more, um, you know, basically expanding the Buddhist teachings more and more, you know, it began to change. And people actually began, new movements rose up. which began taking very different perspectives. And from that, you have the development of these new schools of Buddhism, which uh, a thousand years later, you have people um, giving the Buddha's imprimatur to to things which are the exact opposite of what the historical mm. Buddha said, as far as we can make out. Right. So I just wanted to say, first of all, that I, I was a Theravadan Buddhist. So, And some people mm. will, will accuse me of bias here and say, oh, that's why you're putting it that way. But um, old school. Yeah, old school. And that means that, you know, I practiced the the closest thing we have to the teachings of the historical Buddha as opposed to these later schools, which does not mean that I don't think the later schools are valuable. I think that they are. It's just that I don't think that they that they teach what the historical Buddha actually taught. Mm-hmm. Um, but in any case, you know, looking at this issue of vegetarianism, when the when the Buddhists first started as an example of this process, uh, the Buddhist monks were going on alms round among people who were not Buddhists, many of whom ate meat. So the Buddha said, go ahead and accept whatever people give you, rather than saying, no, I'm not going to take your food because you're a mediator. He said, as long as you don't ask somebody to kill an animal for you, there's no problem. You're just accepting their leftovers. The problem is, is that hundreds of years later, when the majority are Buddhists, the rule is kept static. So now people can keep on killing animals and giving meat to the monks. And as long as the monks don't ask them to kill the animals, they say what that Sri Lankan abbot said to you. But then in, uh, in China, for instance, the monks actually said, well, that's no good. And they, and they wrote a new sutra, which said that the Buddha said that, from, that actually monks who eat meat are great sinners, which is why Chinese Mahayana Buddhists are vegetarian. So just mm. to give a quick encapsulation of this right. historical process. Yeah. So Buddhism is not one thing, right? It's it's quite it's more diverse than Westerners would typically assume. So yes. it problematizes the question: What yes. does Stoicism have in common with the Buddhism? Buddhism? Nevertheless, bold souls that we are, <laughs> we're going to attempt to dive in where angels fear to tread. <laughs> And and have a go at comparing Buddhism and, and Stoicism anyway. What do you think? I think that's great, and and I I'm particularly interested in the comparison of um, Stoicism and the teachings of the historical Buddha. Sort of narrowing the field a bit. There, it's a bit of a simpler question. And maybe it requires a little bit less boldness. Um, so you know, I think looking at it that way, uh, the Buddha and the Stoics both believed that people were suffering 
because they misunderstood the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. And both the Buddha and Stoics believed that through training the mind, these misunderstandings could be removed and people could live free from suffering. Yes. That's the, I mean, that's the fundamental agreement right there. Mm -hmm. um, now, if, if you were Cicero, let's suppose for a minute you're Cicero, right? Not, not your dad or whatever, but you're, <laughs> you're Cicero. And Cicero, like many ancient authors, if asked what's the difference between this philosophy and that philosophy, would point to the definition of the telos. So he would say, well, they have many things in common. But the Epicureans say that the goal of life is hedone or ataraxia. It's peace of mind or a type of a particular type of pleasure. Um, and the Stoics say that the goal of life is arate. So I wonder if a, a, an Indian monk met Cicero or one of his friends, what he would describe the telos of Hinayana Buddhism as being. Yeah, I think that it would be ataraxia. Um, like ataraxia. Yeah, mm. I think I think that, um, you know, peace, the, the ending of suffering is the goal. Nirvana. Um, yeah, and, you know, you talked about um, arate, excellence. From, from the point of view of the Buddha, the only value that um, excellence or virtue has is instrumental to peace of mind. It's not, it's, it's, uh, uh, of course, you know, you could argue a little bit there and say, well, the Buddhist sage who's called the Arhat. Um, he has attained Nibbana or Nirvana in Sanskrit. And so his state is the state of virtue or excellence. You, know, you could make that argument, but I, but I still think that there, there is a bit of a difference because I think that for Stoics, the goal is actually a process. Mm -hmm. It's not a static yeah. state. It's actually, I agree. It's actually, um, it's it's the development of a set of skills which are then practiced continuously. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas for the Buddha, the goal, uh, the the way, the path is the development of a set of skills, but the goal is a static state. Mm -hmm. um, and the of course, there, there's also a bit of a a different, I mean, two, two other real big differences that stand out. And I don't know if you want to, if you want to, how far you want to go down this path, but. Well, I was going to interject and I say, if I remember it, my memory is pretty rusty, but I believe there's a bit of scripture that says that the Dharma is like a bridge or a boat that you use to cross a river, you know, but once you're on the other side, it's useless. Yeah. Like, you absolutely. don't need it anymore. Um, yeah. But then, yeah, this would suggest a kind of instrumental idea about virtue, which also reminds me of Epicureanism, um, actually, which at least sometimes seems to view virtue as of, of only instrumental value. Like, virtue helps you to achieve ataraxia, but it's not intrinsically good. It's a, like you're saying, the Stoics see it kind of the other way around. The uh, virtue itself is the, is the goal of life. And I have to be honest, that's, that part of Stoicism actually appeals to me. Yeah. Well, I, I think that uh, you're completely correct. And the, the, I think it's the Alagudupama Sutta is what you're quoting. Um, the Sutta, the Discourse on the Water Snake. And, and in there, the Buddha says that, yeah, the Dhamma is just a raft. Um, the Buddha felt that uh, practices and points of view 
were even even points of view are instrumental. Mm -hmm. So once you've attained freedom, technically you have no need, further need for either practices or particular points of view. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's, I think, definitely different uh, from the Stoic analysis. Um, and I have also come to prefer the Stoic analysis um, because I, I actually feel that the, the craving of a kind of idealized static state can itself become a problem. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm, not, I'm not really saying that I know or don't know that state to be possible. I, you know, I don't know. Um, but just in my own experience, uh, I found that focusing on a process, uh, focusing on a set of skills that you can yeah. practice every day, um, kind of leads to an immediate increase in strength and peace. And, and then you can, you know, you can practice that without falling into kind of a idealism or some sort of hope for, you know, salvation or final liberation in some way. It squares more with the thinking in modern research on mental health, in my view. Um, the other thing would be the question of if you have a kind of outcome, or as you say, a sort of static goal that you're aiming for, the other problem that inevitably raises is the problem of seeking shortcuts to it. Yes. <laughs> Funny you should say that, actually. Yes. Because that's, you know, the, the that's... So... Depending on your point of view, um, that's exactly what happens in Buddhist history. Uh, mm -hmm. Zen says, you know, the, the early Zen teachers said, without depending on scriptures or practices, directly attaining the heart of Buddha. Mm -hmm. And their, their claim was that you could actually jump directly to nirvana. Mm -hmm. And that also occurs in Tibetan Buddhism and Dzogchen and Mahamudra traditions. Now, mm -hmm. now I'm, not, I'm not making an argument for or against that, actually, but I just think it's interesting what you say because that, that does develop, is that people begin saying, hmm, you know, if, if, there's this, um, if there's this free mind, if there's this free nirvanic awareness, uh, why can't we just jump there right now? Uh, you know, there's got to be some and, way to jump there right now. And to be honest, in the West, there are... Uh, considerable number of people especially on the internet and in the media um since the 1950s onwards or and even earlier that believe that if you drop enough acid or something like that you know you could uh, experience something akin to nirvana without having to do a, who needs all the scriptures and meditation and stuff like that you know i think that i think the danger um I think the danger is a focus on experiences over skills. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, I, I do want to say that, you know, in defense of the classical Buddhist point of view, they would, they would agree with that actually, you know, they would, they would say that, yes, you know, it's good to have Kensho, Nirvana, Satori, all these things to have these breakthrough experiences where you have, where you experience the free mind, where you have this massive insight, these things are good, but the real work is what happens afterwards when you apply it to your daily life. So, you know, I think that the great Buddhist teachers would agree with us, you know, but I think that um, in practice, many people who practice not just Buddhism, but also Advaita Vedanta and non-dual teachings and other sort of uh, Eastern practices in the West Mm -hmm. um, can easily get obsessed with the pursuit of experiences of, of, uh, you know, big, 
mind-blowing experiences or, or feeling a certain way, as opposed to focusing on the, the, the skill. And, you know, stoicism, as I understand it, basically says when you develop the skill of relating to your mind and experiences in a good way, that skill builds strength, it builds excellence of character, and it builds peace of mind. And you come to enjoy the actual practice itself. Yeah. I think if you want to understand stoicism, like it's, as you implied earlier, like I think it's good to go back to Socrates. And uh, Socrates is notoriously inconclusive in some of the dialogues. He He's very much a process guy, uh, it seems to me, rather than an outcome guy. I think Socrates who said the unexamined life is not worth living and the apology famously, you know, believed the goal of life um, and the the definition of wisdom, I think, uh, was a process of self-examination that we can engage in continuously. Uh, Socrates said if there's an afterlife, he looked forward to carrying on engaging in that process even in the, in the afterlife continuously. It's a way of thinking. It's the Socratic method itself, in a sense, I think, is the, is the goal. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, I guess there's another, there's quite a, a direct question, but do you feel that the Bodhisattva ideal of the Mahayana school might be closer in some ways to the kind of virtue ethics that we find in Stoicism? So that's that's a good question, and I'm gonna I'm gonna maybe move sideways a little bit in my answer because um, I think the Bodhisattva ideal is misunderstood a bit in in the West, um, and even the way it's presented, even by some Buddhist teachers in the West, departs from the classical approach. So, classically, um, the goal that the Buddha taught was to attain freedom in this lifetime. And then when you died, you would not be reborn again. And this touches, by the way, on another thing which we haven't, you know, which we haven't touched upon, which we, we may not have time to get into. But there is a big difference in uh, the cosmology and basic worldview of Stoics and Buddhists as well. And that's, that's another interesting issue, um, both generally and for me personally, because I always struggled with the Buddhist cosmology and worldview. And there are aspects of it which I was never able to accept. Um, but leaving that aside for the moment, um, the goal, you know, nirvana is freedom in this life and then not being reborn. Because for the Buddha, you know, to be born is not a good thing. Right? This is something that um, is maybe toned down sometimes in the West. But, you know, uh, the experience of birth and rebirth is yeah. fundamentally painful and, and, and pointless. Well, in the Victorian era, when people were first uh, in a sense, becoming acquainted, popularizing Buddhist thought. Buddhism was sometimes referred to as a form of nihilism. Right, right. Partly, and I think, in... in Schopenhauer, I think we mentioned Schopenhauer earlier, is often characterized as a Buddhist-influenced and a nihilistic thinker. Uh, yes. Schopenhauer also says it's not necessarily a good thing to be born. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, and I, I think um, the Buddha was actually accused of nihilism during his lifetime by other Indians as well. But, um, you know, um, so the goal was to become an arhat, which would mean you were not reborn. 
Um, but over time, there were some thinkers who said there was a more heroic path that you could take, mm -hmm. which was to become a Buddha. Now, what's the difference between a Buddha and an Arhat? An Arhat um, encounters the teachings of the Dharma from a Buddha, attains liberation, and then dies without being reborn. But a Buddha is born into a world where the Dharma does not exist and mm -hmm. founds a religion. So this was this is a very metaphysical goal the, mm -hmm. because it doesn't have to do with this lifetime at all. The the goal is how how am I born in a future lifetime into a world that has no dharma to become a fully awakened Buddha and establish Buddhism there. That's that's the new goal. Um, and it might be hard for Westerners to wrap their head around this kind of thinking a little bit. Um, and the idea is, well, if you want to do that, you have to build up incredible spiritual power and wisdom. Mm -hmm. And so that's the Bodhisattva path. The Bodhisattva path is not giving up your awakening or freedom for the sake of others. The Bodhisattva path is simply remaining in the realm of rebirth long enough to become a fully awakened Buddha so that you can teach a much greater number of beings and have a much greater impact. And when you become a fully awakened Buddha in the Mahayana um, conception of it, you actually become an eternal, magical, self-generating being who can rescue endless numbers of sentient beings throughout time and space. Who, who wouldn't like that? Yeah, it sounds, that sounds great. awesome. And the Theravadan, I, and again, I'm not meaning to take sides here, but the Theravadan criticism of that is, uh, well, doesn't that just sound like a really nice ego trip? I mean, we're mm. saying... Let go of the let go of the ego. Be free in this lifetime, and then and then just you know dissolve into peace and nothingness. And you guys uh -huh. are saying, how about we heroically stay in the world so that later we become an eternal magical being who can manifest magical, powerful forms throughout the universe forever? Basically, we're saying, you know, be free of all individuality, and you're saying become a god. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like yeah. sounds I mean, like a trap. It's much more exciting, and yeah. the later forms of Buddhism—that's what they're based around, you know. And, mm -hmm. and the way to do that is through compassion. It's through meditation, self-training. I was going to ask about that, and through compassionate service of others. Karuna uh, or compassion? Uh, how do you see the the role of compassion? What is the role of compassion, first of all, in Theravadan? Yeah, uh, Buddhism. So, so this is a really fascinating question, I think, as well. Um, so in Theravadan Buddhism, um, the Buddha said that your motivation for practice, he said there are four types of motivation for practice. Number one, mm -hmm. there's the person who practices to benefit others, not themselves. Number two, there's the person who practices to benefit themselves and not others. Number three, there's the person who practices to benefit both self and others. Mm -hmm. And four, there's the person who practices neither to benefit self and others. In other words, you know, they're captivated by some other idea. And, the, and what the Buddha says about which one is better is very interesting. He says the worst practitioner is the person who practices not to benefit anyone. You know, their motivation is actually not to bring benefit. It's some other fixation. That's the worst. But the second worst is the person who benefits, who practices to benefit others and not themselves. Because that's, that's, that's the next worst option. Because that person doesn't know what they're doing. 
they haven't figured out how to benefit themselves. So when they go around trying to benefit other people, they just cause problems. He said, then above that is the person who who practices to benefit themselves and not others. Mm-hmm. Why? Well, at least they're benefiting somebody. <laughs> they're benefiting themselves, right? So at least with that practitioner, they're actually helping themselves. And then the highest practitioner is the person who benefit who practices to benefit both themselves and others. Mm-hmm. That's the best. The person who's motivated both, they want to help themselves and they want to help others. And they know that the way to help others is first to figure out how to help themselves and then to share what they've learned with others. Right? So that's the classical Buddhist point of view, which I think is, is very rational. And actually, we can, you know, we can learn from that. But later on, when the Mahayana path showed up, the Mahayanists at first began saying, you know, to, to take that path I just described and be a Bodhisattva and then a Buddha, they first argued it was a heroic path. That was the, the earliest texts say, these are the great heroes. And then later on, they shift to saying that the motivation is not heroism, it's compassion. Mm-hmm. Because once you become a Buddha, then you can help more people mm-hmm. than you can if you just attain liberation in this lifetime. And so now you get into this controversy where basically the Theravadans say, um, you know, you're, you're, moti- you're, you're actually getting into a kind of an ego trip and you're cloaking it with this compassion argument. Right. And the Mahayanists, of course, disagree and say, no, we, we are authentically motivated by compassion. And that's, and that's uh, the engine that drives our practice. Um, so uh, the Buddha himself did advocate compassion. He said that there were four emotions which were worth having t- towards other beings. And those four emotions were goodwill, which is metta or metri in Sanskrit, mm-hmm. compassion, which is karuna in both languages, um, Mudita, which is actually joy in other beings' virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Upeka, which is equanimity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, the basic idea here is that you should broadcast friendliness to all beings, that mm-hmm. you should wish them to be free of suffering, that you should rejoice in their accomplishments, mm-hmm. and that when you can't help them, then equanimity is the correct attitude. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that answered your question. That's sort of, you know, the, the Buddha's approach to these things, I think is actually quite empirical and rational. Um, but, and some of the later Buddhist schools get into grander ideas, which you may or may not agree with. Mm-hmm. It is very diverse tradition. The, so what, what do you think then? I, already, it sounds like there are some potential similarities um, and we've touched on a few already. I wondered if you wanted to add anything to that in terms of how you see the, the relationship between Stoicism and, and Buddhism. I think that um, the attitude of the Stoics and the attitude of the historical Buddha are more similar than different here. You know, I think, I think that uh, the emphasis, you know, in the writings of Epictetus, for instance, is very much on first learning how to train your own mind and how to become more free yourself. But it's not the case, uh, and I think you would agree with this, um, and I think, you know, sometimes people get confused about this, but it's not the case that that's the end of the story. You know, Epictetus um, believes that social virtue is an essential part of the path, which Mm -hmm. includes, you know, playing your role well. You know, when you're a father, play Mm -hmm. the role of father well. When you're a mother, play the role of mother well. When you're a taxi cab driver, play the role of taxi cab driver well. Mm -hmm. 
and and to express um you know epictetus kind of takes for granted and occasionally discusses but i think he mostly takes for granted that um you are going to be in involved actively involved in roles of affection and care for all the people around you mm-hmm. uh, as well uh, but the emphasis is on taking responsibility for yourself and that's exactly the buddha's emphasis as well um also epictetus- another, I, sorry go ahead I was going to say, he tells his students to begin by studying the discipline of fear and desire, which is kind of the therapy of the passions, basically. And then he says, you should proceed on to the discipline of action, which is about fulfilling your role ethically in society and so on. That's right. I mean, my teacher, when I was a monk, said to me, you know, um, for your first 10 years, you know, don't say anything to anybody. Like when you're a monk, don't try to help anybody for at least 10 years. Um, but you know, but my teacher spent his entire life writing books to help other people, translating things to help other people, teaching other people meditation, but he hadn't begun teaching a single thing until he'd been a monk for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that, uh, I think another thing too, is that, um, the Buddha, uh, emphasized, being realistic about where you had more uh, more power as well. And I think the Stoics would, would agree with this, that, mm-hmm. you know, your your main sphere of influence is yourself. Yeah. So you, you need to prioritize that. Yeah. I wonder, this is, now this is a hard question. I'm going to ask you a hard question. Yeah. I love let's get into the difficult questions. It might even be an impossible question. Like impossible questions. We like impossible questions. So sounding even more exciting. <laughs> yeah. What do you think explains the similarities, such as they are, between Buddhism and Stoicism? Okay, so um, I want to say a little bit about what I think explains it, and then I also want to say a tiny bit about what I think doesn't explain it. <laughs> Um, so I think that what explains it is that, um, first of all, India and the Mediterranean and the kind of, you know, the, the sort of, in, you could say Indo-European milieu, I think shared more in common than we realize. I think yeah. there was more, um, movement between cultures and more, uh, more movement of people and ideas than we realize. Now, I'll interrupt just to say, for the sake of listeners, we should explain what the problem is here. And the problem is Persia is in the way, like between Greece and the Roman world, the Persian Empire, subsequently the Parthian Empire, comes in between. And so that made travel and direct contact between the East and the West problematic for much of ancient history but not entirely not impossible and and it wasn't always problematic yeah i think the trade was was always happening and i think there was always some seepage i think we would probably see a much greater sharing of ideas without that i think Mm -hmm. that i think people were keen to experience other cultures and to debate or at least enough people were keen that if it hadn't been for that i think that we would we would actually have records of debates between Indian and Greek philosophers, you know, an interesting, um, an interesting example is the, the Melinda Panha or the questions of King Melinda. I don't know if you're familiar with this text, but it's a, it's a classic. Yeah. A Greek king. He's yeah. Greek. 
Right. Um, and it's part of the Buddhist canon. Right. And it's, it's actually a, a series of questions and answers between a Greek king and a Theravadan Buddhist monk on various issues of philosophy. Um, so, you know, I mean, that's, that's the only really direct kind of uh, text that I'm aware of. Where there's... We should back up a little bit historically then, and there's a little gap we need to fill in there, which is Persia was in the way, inconveniently, controlling trade to a large extent, um, covetously. But then this guy came along <laughs> the, that changed everything, yeah. um, called Alexander the Great. You might have heard of him, the clues in the name. <laughs> like, so Alexander the Great did something really that's absolutely extraordinary. You know, you just need to look at a map for 10 seconds and, and realize how mind-boggling it actually, actually is. There's an anecdote that Julius Caesar came to a town where there was a statue of Alexander the Great, and he threw his arms around its ankles and burst into tears because he thought no matter what he did, he'd never come anywhere near replicating the achievements of Alexander the Great from a militaristic perspective. So Alexander got all the way to the north of India, Pakistan, conquered Bactria, Afghanistan, and he took with him, reputedly, not Aristotle, who he left behind, his purported tutor, but some other philosophers all the way uh, to the east where they potentially would have encountered what the Greeks called the gymnosophoi or naked wise men because they didn't have a word for Buddhism or Hinduism or Jainism or anything like that. So they just said, there's these naked wise men that we hear about in India. Um, And as a consequence of this, there was, for a limited time only, some direct contact between the East and West, including between philosophers. Yeah, no, that's right. And, and uh, I think, uh, you know, that's a rare um, example of a text we have actually de- depicting a discourse between, you know, and it's interesting that both Indians and Greeks were writing these or writing or orally passing on these discourses. And here we have an example of a collaboration, which is very interesting, uh, at least some degree of collaboration. But um, so on the one hand, I do think that there was some movement of similar ideas and questions. But I think that the fundamental reason that Stoicism and Buddhism have similarities is, is, has more to do with the human condition and the nature of reality than anything else. I just think mm-hmm. that, that, that people who are doing philosophy, regardless of where they are, are going to come up with similar questions and yeah. similar struggles and similar solutions. It's a perennial archetypal kind of thing. People are people and great minds think alike, that kind of thing. Um, that's what so I, we shouldn't be surprised. And I, I also want to, I, I agree with, I, that's my opinion. Uh, but I also would like to say, you know, there's this interesting, um, there's this theory that's been growing recently, the Puro, um, yeah. you know, who was the, the, the founder of Puranism or, or skepticism, we should mm-hmm. say, maybe better, um, on which I am not an expert. But, um, you know, the founder of, of skepticism that he had, we know that he went to India. And, mm-hmm. and we know that he had some sort of interaction with the Gymnosophi, or at least perhaps heard about them or heard about their ideas. Um, and some people have recently been saying that um, they think that, that uh, Puro was influenced by Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm actually very skeptical about this. Um, I mm-hmm. don't think 
that Piro's ideas show that much similarity to the Buddha's ideas. Um, I do think, though, that Piro's ideas show big similarity to another Indian philosopher, Sanjaya Balatiputta. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sanjaya Balatiputta was contemporaneous with the Buddha, and he was a mm-hmm. skeptic. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, he, we don't have any surviving teachings of Sanjaya, but um, we do have, uh, he's quoted in the Buddhist scriptures, kind of similar to, you know, the way that we have Stoics being quoted by other Greek philosophers who are arguing against them. Sanjaya is quoted in the Pali Canon in the, in the most ancient Buddhist uh, records. And they depict him as basically saying something like, well, if you were to ask me if there's life after death, would I tell you there is? No, I wouldn't. Would I tell you there isn't? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't mm-hmm. say I do think there is. I wouldn't say I don't think there is. I wouldn't say that I both do and don't think there is. And I wouldn't say that mm-hmm. I neither do nor do think there is. I wouldn't say yes. And I wouldn't say no. And I wouldn't say yes, no, or no, yes. Well, and they're actually making fun of him. Right. This sounds like uh, in the Mahayana tradition, uh, Nagarjuna and uh, Majamakavada as well, which may be a kind of related tradition, but also the tradition in Buddhism, uh, let me see if I can remember the terminology, is in, in different questions or unanswerable, where Buddha would hold his finger up, um, reminds me in some ways of the sceptical tradition. Yes. See, that that's the thing, but the, the difference between the Buddha and the sceptical tradition is that the Buddha made a distinction between questions which were irrelevant mm-hmm. and questions which were relevant. And so the Buddha says, you know, whether the sage exists or doesn't exist after death is, it's irrelevant. I mean, it just, it doesn't matter. Um, and, it, you know, it, it, it sounds like what he's saying is that it can't be meaningfully spoken about and it also isn't relevant. And mm-hmm. he says at one point, you know, there are so many things that I know but which are not relevant to the path of practice. He says, it's like all the leaves in the forest compared to the group of leaves in my hand. Mm -hmm. The group of leaves in my hand are the things that I know that are relevant to the practice. And that's what I want you to focus on. Mm -hmm. So that's really distinct from skepticism. I mean, that's, that's Mm -hmm. him saying there are things that we do know to be true, a small group of things that are both true and relevant. And then there's a big group of things that we can't think about or speak about coherently and and they're not relevant anyway. So just forget Mm -hmm. about them which is distinct from Sanjaya, who was saying we can't know for sure any of these things and, and actually advocating a suspension of judgment, which is, I think, so Gosh. similar to Greek skepticism. Mm-hmm. This also sounds a little bit like so- more like Socrates because Socrates was keen to say that we should suspend judgment about things like the nature of celestial bodies because, first of all, he thought it was a waste of time and secondly, he thought we, we could never really be sure for certain, at least in the ancient world, they had very limited evidence to answer those questions. So he thought the natural philosophers were kind of wasting their time, Anaxagoras and these guys that preceded him. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he is completely agnostic about everything. Um, at times, Socrates does appear to say that he has knowledge about things like the nature of virtue, um, he knows, for instance, that the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, and he appears quite confident in making statements about the, the way um, right. that he's he's acquired uh, through the process of philosophy. Though we should give an honourable mention. There wasn't only um, Piro, a uh, sceptic, who went there and back again. He went all the way 
to the East and came back again. But there was also a cynic philosopher that accompanied Alexander the Great. And you could see some similarities between the cynic tradition and certain branches of Indian philosophy. Um, Certainly the cynics uh, were also known for almost kind of imitating the lifestyle of an Indian sannyasin or holy man, like a a renunciate. You know, their behavior seems like that in, in some ways. So much, so much so, you know, just to, to jump in that they're actually, the, the Pali Canon um, discusses a group of Indian ascetics who practice something mm-hmm. called the way of the dog. Really? I don't know yeah. that. That's really cool. Hmm. So I, I, I agree with you there. I think there's a strong similarity between the whole, the way the cynics lived and, um, and their whole attitude is really similar to some of the more radical Indian ascetics. Um, but but again, you know, it's kind of formulated through the Greek cultural lens. But, but yeah, I mean, if we're while well, we're on the subject, I mean, I could I could be wrong about this, but I think it's possible that there was more knowledge of Greek philosophy among Indian thinkers than there was of Indian philosophy among Greek thinkers. Um, there's no evidence of Indian scriptures making it to Athens, for example. Um, but certainly Greek scriptures made it as far as Afghanistan or Bactria. And we have a stone that was found in uh, Afghanistan that has four maxims from the Delphic Oracle engraved upon it, <laughs> for example. Fascinating. Um, and worship of Her- Hercules, the Greek god, um, in the north of India. Uh, as well. So it may be that there was more, it's quite plausible that the information flowed more to India from Greece than vice versa, but it is very difficult to quantify. And there are legends spoken of in hushed tones. Like in some of it, some of our ancient sources in the West are, are viewed as kind of romanticized and, and legendary and so on. But we have um, there's a legend that Pythagoras, for example, went to India. Um, there's an anecdote that comes many centuries later that an Indian merchant at Athens engaged in a debate um, about the nature of the gods with Socrates. Hmm. Um, there's a guy called Apollonius of Tyana, who was a first century AD Neo-Pythagorean who we're told reputedly traveled around the world, including going to India hmm. and debating philosophy, the gymnosophoi there. Um, but these are highly dubious because, of course, it's going to make you sound cool. Yeah. <laughs> like, if you say, my, my teacher went to Egypt and Ethiopia and India and everywhere, like, all of you can be like, and other people are going, sure he did. Yeah, sure. And, and who knows? You know, I'm I'm ready to believe a lot of Greek philosophers went to India. I I, I don't think Jesus went there, but you know, I think uh, it's, it, it's it's possible. Um, but we're in the realms of kind of speculation, unfortunately, because the there is there are little fragments of evidence, but they're kind of um, a bit sketchy. But it does seem Pyro, it's believed, Pyro um, went to India and came back again, um, and maybe introduced uh, something that he learned over there. But then, then you have the other problem that you mentioned earlier, which is that if we if we went back in time to the first century AD and saw first century Christians at Rome, 
I think we, we they would be surprisingly different from modern-day American evangelicals, for example, or Roman <laughs> yeah, Catholics, right? So yeah. A very different form of Christianity that yeah. existed. Montanism, I believe it was called, was a prevalent um, in the second century AD and in the time of Marcus Aurelius. But if you went back uh, to the time of Alexander the Great, to India, um, the forms of Buddhism and the forms of uh, early Hinduism that existed, you know, there would be religious sects. Probably, it would probably have been more diverse. Undoubtedly, it would have been more diverse, even than it, diverse. than it is today. Yeah, um, because a lot of effort was put into the sen- into over the centuries to try and introduce more structure, yes. and consistency to to Hindu thought uh, in particular. So I. It may be that the, we shouldn't be surprised if Greek philosophers went there and what they brought back it might be kind of unrecognizable to us as That's Buddhism or Hinduism. But maybe, you know, they might have met some other random sect of Indian thinkers that we've never even heard of. Absolutely. When they're talking yeah. about the, the Gimnosophite. But, yeah, but it, it did happen um, to one, some extent. One thing I want to mention quickly is, you know, the Buddha does mention in one of the discourses a, um, I, I, I wish I had looked up this exact quote now, but he says something like, you know, there's a philosopher in a faraway land who teaches impermanence. Yeah. And, and that guy. yeah. And, and the, the, this the, is a big one. Yeah. It's a big one, right? Because it really seems like he's talking about Heraclitus. Well, the importance of this in the eyes of Buddhists is that this is, this cuts to the very heart of what defines Buddhism in a sense. And the que- you know the question um, one of the, the the questions that people sometimes pose, academics sometimes pose, is, is why why is Buddhism not a form of Hinduism? Like because Hinduism is a very diverse religious tradition that assimilated many different uh, branches and sects. Buddhism wasn't assimilated by Hinduism; it retained a distinct identity. Um, and to some extent, that's because generally Hinduism emphasizes this doctrine of Atman or an immortal, uh, the immortal soul. Um, but Buddhism is known as Anichavada um, and, it's, uh, and, uh, and also Anattavada, the doctrine of impermanence mm-hmm. uh, and no self. So the I, the doctrine, this doctrine of impermanence is part of the identity of Buddhism. It's what's characteristic. Very, of very much so. Yeah. Very much so. And so, you know, Buddhists would have seen someone who said similar things. You can't step into the same river twice and so on. Uh, Pantare, everything flows, as being a kindred spirit. And yes. that would be Heraclitus. Yeah. Um, and it's of interest, I suppose, that Heraclitus came from Ephesus, which is in uh, West, uh, Western Asia. Um, so he may have had contact certainly with Persian thinkers and possibly some traces of Indian thought could have found their way um, to the Greek colonies where these thinkers were, were based before they got to Athens. Um, but this is, this is a... And, and also, this is an early... I mean, another interesting point is this is pretty early. Like, uh, Heraclitus is, um, what, in the 6th century BC? 
Um, so it's round about the time that, that Buddhism may have been developing. Yeah, no, that's right. And, you know, sadhus were, they basically had no possessions. They were used to extreme hardship. And, they, and most of them wondered, as a matter of principle, they wondered and didn't settle down. Mm-hmm. And you have to wonder, I mean, if, if these people who were able to endure so much hardship were so self-reliant and who were wanderers, I mean, who knows how far they got? Some of them must have just kept wondering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, def- absolutely. I mean, it's just a pity that we don't know more um, about... There almost certainly there must have been uh, contact between these cultures. And the other... I, I'll mention one other thing that kind of muddies the water a little bit. Uh, there's another religion that most people... That's kind of forgotten about now. Um, that originated in the Parthian Empire um, in the second or third century AD, called Manichaeism, um, yeah. that was a hybrid of Christianity, Zoroastrianism, and Buddhism. Yeah. Um, and so there were kind of other intermediate things going on. There were other religious thinkers that were relatively early on, like in the, in the, under the Roman Empire, trying to combine these different religious and philosophical traditions. Oh, absolutely. And even and the it was way a that, big thing at the time, for a while. Yeah. And even the way that Judaism developed during that period, you know, Judaism integrated um, Zoroastrianism and um, Greco-Roman Gnosticism, and then later Judaism integrated Neoplatonism. You know, Kabbalah, Jewish Kabbalah is basically... Uh, what you get when you mix Jewish theology and Neoplatonism. So, mm-hmm. yeah, there's all mm-hmm. kinds of interesting things going on. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the where we wanted to, to come back to, I think, and leave our listeners was with this question, a practical question, I suppose, about how Stoics could benefit from learning a little bit more about Buddhism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's interesting because in my in the past, I think I was somebody with a primary Buddhist practice who was interested in how I could maybe read or study or benefit from the Stoics. And as, as my focus has shifted more to philosophy, it's kind of the opposite. You know, my question now is what Buddhist techniques, cognitive techniques, meditation techniques, ways of thinking are interesting and useful philosophically? Um, so, you know, one example... Um, the Buddha talked about a lot about how to deal with thoughts, how to deal with problematic thoughts. So he has a list, uh, which is in a sutta called the Vitaka Santana Sutta, uh, which means the discourse on how to calm thoughts. Mm-hmm. And he basically says, what do you do with problematic thoughts? And first of all, what is a problematic thought? So I'll mention in brief that the Buddha said that there were basically two, two categories you could divide your thoughts into. And I think Stoics can relate to this. The first are thoughts that lead to the affliction of self, of others, or of both. And which obstruct discernment, vex the mind, and enslave it. Jeez, that doesn't sound like fun. <laughs> no. <laughs> Vexing and enslaving. Vexing and enslaving. It sounds like Epictetus to me a bit. Yeah. Know? Um, and then there are thoughts which do not lead to the affliction of self, others, mm-hmm. or both, which foster discernment, which lead to a lack of vexation and freedom. 
Now so, again, somewhere. So first of all, he suggests observing which category your thoughts fall into. It's a very mm -hmm. simple exercise, you know, when thoughts are coming up, you just say, well, what does this lead to of those two general categories? Mm. And if you find that the thought is something which, uh, which is afflicted, let's just say, which is, which afflicts you, mm -hmm. um, then he says there are five possible approaches. Mm. The first one is replace it. So if you, if you're attending to a theme, that's the language he uses. If you're attending to a theme, which vexes and enslaves the mind, then attend to a different theme. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking, for instance, about how somebody really wronged me, and they're mm -hmm. so wrong. How could they be so wrong? They should have known better, you know, and you're just thinking about all the ways that they were wrong. Well, that's, that's an afflicting thought, an enslaving mm -hmm. thought. So attend to a different theme, like, for instance, the theme of universal friendliness to all beings, you know, or, um, or even something that has no relationship to that afflicting thought. Like, for instance, um, just attend to something totally unrelated. You know, just try to basically... Mm either replace it with a more positive, wholesome thought, or just distract yourself by attending to something more constructive. If that doesn't work, mm -hmm. uh, then examine the drawbacks of the problematic thought. So here mm -hmm. you would actually say, hmm, this angry thought, what are its drawbacks? Well, mm -hmm. how does it make me feel in my mm -hmm. body? Bad, stressed out. You know, um, if I keep on dwelling on it, what's going to be the effect? Well, I'm going to think more and more unclearly, and I might do something stupid. So you, you examine the drawbacks of that thought. If that still doesn't work, then try just ignoring it, which basically mm -hmm. means whenever the thought comes up, just let it pass through. This is kind of like a mindfulness technique. You know, just let the thought arise and pass through. Don't engage with it. If that still doesn't work out, then he says, direct your attention to the arising of the thought and see how it takes effort for that thought to arise and mm -hmm. relax. Mm-hmm. So he basically says, it's like a person who's walking and says, why do I need to walk? Why don't I just sit? Mm -hmm. And then they're sitting. Then why do I need to sit? I'm just going to lie down. So he actually says, look at how, whenever that thought arises, you're putting effort into it and just say, why mm -hmm. do I need to do that? I'm just going to relax and just keep on relaxing more and more and more. And then if that doesn't work, then he says, we're running out of options here. Yeah, I know. Then he says, right. he just says, just apply sheer determination. We've got to he find says, something that works. Sheer yeah, determination. He, he just says, if you're, if you're like, he actually says like a wrestler who just jumps on the other wrestler and pins uh -huh. them to the ground. If nothing else, now just brute just force. Notice, brute force. But this is the last result. That's your last option. After you've tried many other more refined and healthy and constructive options. If nothing else works and you're still raging with anger, then just grab the anger and throttle it is basically what he says. But again, that's the last resort. I love stuff like this. Like, he's a psychotherapist. He's coming up with a repertoire of techniques. I believe that some of the strategies are better than others in general, but I think they all have their place. Yeah. Um, you know, so there, there's a great deal that we could say about the use of those from the perspective of modern evidence-based psychotherapy. Um, but all of those, I think all such strategies, emotional coping techniques, yeah. have, have some place, although they all have different pros and cons. Um, and some in general, I think, are going to be preferable uh, to others. But that's that's great advice, I think, for people to take away. Anything that expands their repertoire of emotional coping, I think I really is agree with you on that. And I, I like what you were talking about, how these thoughts have different 
there are these techniques of different pros and cons. And mm-hmm. I just wanted to kind of back you up on that and say, I think that one issue with all of these techniques that we have to be careful about is not to think that there's one magic technique, but to realize that different techniques work at different times for different people and to have creativity and flexibility about it. I'll give you an example. Distraction techniques in general work pretty well in the moment, but not so well in the longer term. And one reason for that is that they might not change the predisposition or the underlying beliefs that give rise to the thought in the first place, for instance. However, cognitive disputation techniques might change the underlying belief or thought that creates a disposition to it, but they're much harder to implement under duress in the heat of the moment. So those are two techniques that each perhaps maybe there's a time and a place, there's a season for distraction and a season for cognitive disputation. It kind of depends whether you're in the middle of trying to cross a busy street at the time. You can't go, hang on, stop the traffic (laughs) while I get my flip chart out and start weighing up the evidence for and against this underlying belief that's uh, troubling me right now. So distraction... uh, or kind of refocusing attention, or these kind of things, might work better when you're piloting a fighter jet, or when you're crossing a business, or something like that, for example. But longer term, it might be it might behove us to examine how we got that thought in the first place, and to address the, the underlying beliefs, assumptions, and attitudes uh, that gave rise to it. So there's a lot, there's a lot that we could unpack there, but we have to begin by knowing what our options are. And the one thing that the Buddha was good at, as you mentioned earlier, was making lists. Yes. <laughs> right. right. And people like, even today, people, people like lists. So, you know, it gives us something to get our teeth into. But there's more, I think there's, it, it's the beginning of a conversation about where and when do we use these different strategies and what are the pros and cons comparatively of each one. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think we've got to where we wanted to be today and that's been yet another great discussion with yet another fantastic guest so i'd like to thank today's guest matthew gindon for joining me Uh, and we hope that you enjoyed the conversation uh, as much as we did please share the link with your friends and subscribe to the stoicism philosophy's way of life newsletter on substack for more podcasts and articles in philosophy thanks for listening And goodbye from me, Donna Robertson, and from my guest, Matthew Gindon. Bye, everyone. Great.